little guy was confronted by three bullies. Any one of them could have obliterated him at any moment, and it looks like they had uh, given some evidence that that's exactly what they had in mind. This little guy was a pretty smart fellow, and he thought of a plan very quickly, and he, as he was approached by these three bullies, he stepped back a couple of feet. He reached down on the ground, and he drew a line in the dirt. Stepped back a couple more feet, he looked at the biggest one of the three bullies, and he said to him, okay, listen, you, I dare you to cross that line. The big bully looked down at him for a moment and confidently, as you can imagine, stepped across the line, towering over this little guy. The little guy looked at him and said, See, now that wasn't too bad. Now we're both on the same side. <laughs> and I love that story. And the reason I love it is because it has a truth to it that has to do with what we've been talking about as far as marriage is concerned. And I want you to listen to me very carefully because I believe that this is the foundation of a successful marriage. And that is this. Any marriage that is going to avoid divorce must have husbands and wives who clearly understand that they, are really, that they really are on the same side. Any marriage that is going to avoid divorce must have husbands and wives who understand that they really are on the same side. For a marriage to survive, a husband and wife has to be friends. Friends, not enemies. Friends, not adversaries. Friends. You know, the, de the dictionary definition of friendship or friends says that it's a close acquaintance, a supporter, one who is attached to another by esteem, respect, and affection, an intimate, a person on the same side in a struggle. And I like that because most husbands and wives, even in the best of marriages, will be the first to admit that marriage, at its foundation, can be a struggle. But a friend, and we'll go into more details in a later session, but a friend, not an adversary, not an enemy, not somebody who's working against you, but somebody who's working with you side by side to accomplish the same goals and the same purpose and the same, you know, the same direction to go in the same way. And it's important that we understand that, but before I go any further, it's also extremely important to recognize the fact that, you know what, if you are divorced or have been divorced and you consider yourselves a failure, listen to me, failure is an event. It is not a person. Failure is an event. It's something that happens in a moment in time. It's not the person. And we need to recognize that because so many of us fail in so many areas of life and that failure keeps us from becoming everything that God wants us to be. And we deny the fact that God can take broken pieces and put them back together and make them whole again. Failure is an event. It's not a person. All of us have felt the impact of divorce. I know that I have personally. I've, I've observed the horrors of divorce in our family. I've observed it with our friends. And, and, you know, and I want to make sure that you understand that this session isn't a session that's to beat up on people that have been divorced. You've already experienced everything that we're going to talk about in this session and next week. It, it, so it's, it's not in an effort to beat people up and make them feel more guilty about what they've gone through in life. It's not to whoop up on people that have been divorced and have experienced it. So in a lot of ways, you're going through or have gone through what we're going to discuss. But this, the purpose of this session is to, to help all of us who have ever considered, maybe to help those who are in a marriage right now that isn't all that they think that it should be, and they've contemplated divorce. 
and they've rationalized in their own mind and somehow you begin to believe that, you know what, uh, divorce is the lesser of two evils. It's the lesser of the two evils. And you've rationalized it and you've justified it and you've convinced yourself. And, and so what I'm trying to, to do is to encourage those of us who have ever considered divorce, who have ever, you know, who are, will, will ever consider divorce, or maybe right now you're considering divorce. And I know that many of you like to give tapes of what we go through to people. And, and if you're a person that's getting a tape right now and you're listening to it because a friend is concerned that you are considering divorce, this really is for you. This is for you to sit down and to listen to and to be objective and, and, and to listen to what the evidence is. Because I, for any of you who have ever said, I want a divorce, my response is basically this. Oh, so you want a divorce? Well, let's talk about it. So you want a divorce. Some of us need to understand that divorce is a huge problem in our society. And that it is an extreme, it, it's a probability. If you are married today, there is a probability that you will experience divorce. It is no longer a possibility. And I want you to consider the evidence and the facts as they are presented. It is a probability, not a possibility. In the past 50 years, divorce rates have risen 700% in our country. It says the number of single parent families has mushroomed. For example, in 1948, only one of 14 children under the age of six was brought up by a single parent. By 1973, it was one out of seven. And today, the statistic is one out of every five children is brought up by a single parent. Divorces worldwide are highest for childless or single-child couples between the ages of 25 and 29. Divorce data tabulated for 58 countries, regions, and cultures between 1947 and 1981, which was the last worldwide study, indicated that the so-called seven-year itch was actually a four-year itch and that most marriages will end in divorce and break up by the fourth year. However, in the United States, it is by the second year. The rising rate of divorce is probably one of the many reasons publications have changed from focusing on how to have a better marriage to how to have a painless divorce. I read recently of one attorney who came up with the, the novel idea of having a drive-through window to hand out information on divorce. Fast food business, fast divorce business, convenience. Drive through, we'll give you the information, call us back if you're interested. To make it as painless as possible, that unprecedented attitude of acceptance in our culture that it's okay. You tried, oh gee, you tried for almost two years. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work by then, huh? Man, that, you really made that effort. And so we need to understand that there's something wrong in our culture, and you need to ask the question of what is happening. How many of you have seen the movie Mary Poppins? Mary Poppins. Do you remember in the movie Mary Poppins, it was her first day with the kids, and these two new children, Jane and Michael, jumped into bed at the end of this amazing day with this amazing new nanny, Mary Poppins. And, uh, and Michael turned to her and said, Mary Poppins, you won't ever leave us, will you? And full of excitement, the, the young girl turned around and said, you know what, will you stay if we promise to be good? You won't ever leave us, will you? Will you stay if we promise to be good? And Mary Poppins looked at her, and as she tucked the children in bed, she said, Look, that's a pie crust promise. That's one that's easily made and easily broken. 
what's happening into, and, and, and to marriages in our culture is we're, we're a culture filled with people who make pie crust promises. It's easy to make them, but it's easy to break them. And so what are the realities of divorce? You know, what, the thing that just troubles me is that the first sign of trouble, people bail out of their marriage. And I have been involved in, in performing or officiating at many weddings, and I have seen couples for six months to a year plan for their marriage. I've seen six months to a year. Now, if you've had children that have been married, or you can remember because you're young enough that you just have recently gotten married, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, for six months to a year, they've gone through this process and all the painstaking things that you've got to do to plan your wedding. And it's just as amazing to me, having been involved in people, is that after you go through all of that, why in the world would you ever want to get divorced? It's like if you can get through the planning of your wedding, your marriage is going to be a piece of cake. Think about it. Man, I've been in the back of churches where step families and, and this person and that person, they've been cussing each other out, swearing each other, calling each other every name in the book, man. I mean, I'm just like, whoa, what in the world is going on here? I've seen more anger and bitterness over planning a wedding and where people sit and who walks who down and who's in it and who's out of it and why you out of it and why you in it. It's like, man, if you get through all that, it gets a lot easier. Man, but that's the way we are. But you know what? What troubles me even more than that is I'll see people plan for six months to a year their wedding. And once they're married, they don't spend a minute planning to make their marriage everything that God intended for it to be. They'll go through all the planning. And, I, and I'll challenge men. After all the planning's over and all that's done, I can't find too many men that will pick up a book and read about what you're supposed to be as a, as a husband and as a father. 75, 80% of books on marriage and family are bought and read by women. I can't find a man who says, you know what, we just went through all this planning together. And now, you know what, I want to make my marriage everything that God's intended for it to be. And I'm going to keep on, you know, and, and it's sad. You'll spend 6 to 12 months to plan a wedding and, you know, and this is, I just want you to consider this for a moment, but why is it so hard to go away for a weekend marriage retreat? It's amazing to me. And, and, I, and every year we have some type of retreat, and every year the purpose of it is just to have people to get away from all the hustle and bustle of everyday life to spend time and concentrate just with their spouse. And it's amazing to me, but I'm not surprised by it because Satan wants to destroy your marriage. And don't you ever forget it. So I'm not surprised to hear all the excuses of why you can't get away to spend time and concentrate on being with one another. Why you can't spend time to learn what God has to say about what you're supposed to be as a husband and as a wife. I'm not surprised to hear that we have trouble every year trying to encourage people to go on a retreat. But I just want to encourage you to consider what I just said. People spend six months to 12 months to plan their wedding and they won't spend a minute after that to make their, their marriage what it's supposed to be. Take it for what it's worth. If you can be there, it's always worth your while. Every time we go away, people come home and I say, man, I'm so glad I went. Oh, man, I can't wait till next time. Next time comes around or what? Man, you know what? That's a bad weekend. Well, sure it is. It always is. Count on it. Plan on it. Just to consider it, though. What are the realities of divorce? What can those who say, I want a divorce, expect in the future? For those having marital problems, is divorce really the lesser of two evils? Is it really an acceptable and painless way out? 
let me just share with you some things because I believe that being informed is a better approach to life than just hoping that everything will just kind of work its way out. I think if you have the facts and you consider what the facts are, you can make more intelligent decisions, not only for you and your marriage, but also as it pertains to your children and all the people around you who are impacted by the decision that you're going to make. So you really want a divorce. Let's take a look, a close look, at you and 10, well, you and nine of your friends. There are going to be 10 people in this group that choose to divorce your spouse. You and nine friends who decide, I don't want to be married anymore, and it's your choice to leave your spouse. Now, I'm not talking about people that, that are victims of someone who chooses to leave their relationship. I am talking about the person who initiates and chooses that divorce. For whatever reason, you know, when people tell us that, you know, people choose divorce as a last resort. Tried everything else, now I'm going to do it. But for you and nine of your friends who choose divorce, these are the facts, this is the truth, and you consider it. When you choose divorce after two years, seven of the ten members of your group will seriously consider their divorce to have been a mistake. Seven out of ten are going to be sorry they ever initiated it, sorry they ever did it, and regret the fact that it took place. Seventy percent says of that group, okay? And five of the group will have already gone through a second divorce. Already have gone through a second divorce. This is within two years of the original divorce. And you know why that is? Because there was somebody else. See, there had to be somebody else because you've already gotten married immediately after you were divorced and within a year after that, you've got divorced again. And I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. But five of those ten will have already gone through a second divorce divorce. The majority of people will be angry and bitter toward their spouse and it will have a negative impact on their children and on their relationships with others. And only, listen to this, only one of you will even claim and I say claim to have a happy life five years after you chosen, had chosen divorce. And I say claim because I don't even know if that's true. You know what I'm saying? That's what you're saying outwardly, but who knows really what's going on in your heart. But some of you, I know how you are. You think, you know what, though? But I could be that one person. I could be that one out of ten. I talked to a man recently who said, you know what? For two years after my divorce, I was an emotional wreck. I was an emotional wreck. It was devastating. That's the emotional consequences. That doesn't consider the economic consequences. And consider these. These are facts. The economic consequences of divorce. Half of the women, half of you in that group, who don't remarry will be on welfare compared to one out of every ten two-parent households. Half of you. Only half of the fathers who divorce will see their children regularly. The standard of living for women and their children will drop substantially, and for every $10 that you spent the year before your divorce, you will have $3 to spend after your divorce. Half of the fathers will fail to support your children. And almost that many will not even see their children for 12 months at a time. Now, I'm going to ask you something, man. I'm going to ask you, sir, for the dad that's considering divorce. If you knew that your child's standard of living would drop 73% and that you wouldn't see him or her for the next year, would you still go through with your divorce or would you try to do everything that was humanly possible within your ability to, to, to do it? Would you do everything that you could to make your marriage better? Now think about it. For the wife and the mother, 
If you knew that your children were going to suffer in an incredible manner mentally and financially and emotionally and the chances for happiness in the near and even distant future were minimal at best, would you still go through with the divorce, if it's your choice, obviously, or would you take every conceivable step to save your marriage? See, these are the realities of divorce. We flippantly say, I want a divorce, and I just say, hey, so you do, huh? So you really want a divorce. Well, why don't you consider what you're, this, this path that you're about to embark on? Why don't you consider what's going to happen? Now, I realize a divorce decision isn't always rational, and it isn't always logical, and it always isn't intellectual, because divorce really is an emotional decision. And it's not a reasonable one, because if you looked at reason, you'd say, well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? The odds are way against me. One out of ten people say that they even have any sense of happiness at all, 10%, 73%. You know, the standard of living will drop by 73%. For every $10 I used to have, now I'll have $3. Man, that doesn't make any sense. That's ludicrous. But the problem is it's not an intellectual decision. It's an emotional one. And that's where we run into a problem because in many cases, selfishness is really at the root of it. Either one person or the other person or both people are being selfish. So you'll dance all around it. Somehow or another, you'll rationalize it. You'll be different. Your divorce will be different. You'll get some counsel on how to make your divorce painless. You'll drive through the drive through window and see how easy it'll be. You'll think that it's going to be cheap and expensive. Oh, and by the way, the average divorce in the state of California just for attorney's fees is $30,000. Now, that doesn't count real property loss, and that doesn't include what you're going to lose because there's going to be anger and bitterness, and there's going to be fighting, and there's going to be all kinds of ways that people try to get even with each other. There's not going to be any of that. In fact, uh, I saw not too long ago a man said that he answered an ad that was in the newspaper. It was in the auto trader, and it was advertising a 1992 Mercedes-Benz. I don't know what the model was, but it was advertised, low mileage, for sale, $50. $50. The guy read the ad, thought there must be a mistake. You know, it, it's got to be a mistake. So he called the phone number, and the gal said, no, it's $50. So he drove over, looked at it, and the thing was beautiful, low mileage, great condition, handed the gal 50 bucks, she signed the pink slip over, and he said, I don't understand, why are you selling this for $50? He said, oh, the reason for it's simple, because my, my husband, and this is his favorite car, my husband ran away with his secretary, called me from out of town and said, honey, you know what, I want a divorce, but just to show what a good sport I am, I want you to take my favorite car, that Mercedes, I want you to sell it, and I want you to send me half of everything you get for it. She said, all right, check's in the mail, $25. Yeah, I mean, and you know what, and we laugh about it. You know how true that it is in real life every day? I'll give you an example, 1985. <clears throat> we're doing a Bible study for the Rams. One of the, uh, our friends lived down the street of, the, of a home that was just listed for sale. And they said, oh, you guys got to come and look at this house. Oh, you know what? We're really not interested in looking at this. Oh, man, but it's a great deal. Brand new neighborhood. The house only two years old. Went up to the house. It was listed 259000 That was in 1985. It was like, oh, man, there's no way. I can't afford this. A couple of months go by, and all of a sudden, they call again and say, look, you know what? You're going to go check this out because the guy took it off the listing. He's trying to sell it by owner. Now it's like $225,000. So we met with them, make a long story short, and we negotiated a deal and ended up buying this house for $212,000 if there was a condition, if we could close escrow within 30 days. 
He paid $208,000. This couple paid $208,000 for this brand new house, put $55,000 in improvements in the house between landscaping and upgrades and shutters and all the stuff that you do when you get a new house and you get some money in the, in the, in the days where we used to have a lot of equity in our homes here in Southern California. You know, and you had something you could borrow against to make your house look better and make people think you had a lot more money than you really did. Now we all know who didn't have any money. <laughs> so, but, but anyway, so we, we buy this house. And so Lynn and I drive over with our, our kids, and, and we're going to go through and meet this guy and do a walkthrough. And when we drive up to the house, the garage door is wide open, the door inside the house is open, but we sat there because no one answered the door, and, and uh, he came pulling up, and he said, how'd you get the garage open? I, we didn't get it open. And he had this look on his face, like, uh-oh. And he went running in the house, and he went running through the house, and the only thing left in his house was his clothes and a couple of his family's pieces of furniture. He had been on a business trip, and everything was gone. And as we began to talk, we discovered why everything was gone. Because they were in the process of getting a divorce. And she waited to the right time and at the right moment to get what she wanted, and she got out of there and left his stuff on the floor. And this guy was devastated. This guy was shaking. He was white as a ghost, and I could just see the pain in his eyes. And it was a shame, too, because we really need to find out how the microwave oven worked, that it just wasn't good timing. <laughs> I was like, probably not the time to ask him, you know what I mean? And so, don't worry, though, we figured it out. And they're, and the, and, and they're still divorced. And the devastation of all of it is, is that, you know what, that didn't include attorney's fees. That was just 55,000 real dollars that they put into a house that we've been able to live in for the last 10 years and really enjoy everything that they did. And as bad as we felt about it, but you know what? That's reality, isn't it, folks? That's just the way that it is. When people decide, I just want a divorce. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it takes. It's the lesser of two evils because that, otherwise it means we have to work this out. We've got to stay together. We've got to try to figure out a way to make our marriage better. Oh, you know what? I just want out. Oh, so you really do want a divorce, do you? The bottom line is that there's so much bad advice and counsel being sold to people. And I mean that literally. Being sold to people who are emotionally vulnerable because they're going through a difficult marriage and they're getting counsel and advice that just devastates and ruins their life. And the reality of it is is that we all need counsel, we all need advice, we all need to turn somewhere where we can trust the person that we're turning to that they're going to give us the straight scoop. And that's why I would encourage you to consider what God has to say. Because if you want a divorce, it's as if God is saying to you, so you want a divorce? Well, just consider what I have got to say about the subject. As I've searched through the Bible, it became readily apparent to me that God has a high value of marriage and family. From the very beginning, marriage was God's idea. And we're going to talk in depth about it in a couple of weeks. But God has a very high value of marriage and family. It was His idea. From the very beginning, Jesus said, don't you remember from the beginning? It was not to be so that a man should divorce his wife. That wasn't God's intention. That was never his plan. We're going to see about the benefits of marriage as God has outlined them to say, these are the benefits, the joy of your marriage. 
We need to recognize it and understand it. One of the most beautiful passages in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 5 that highlights you know, what, what it means for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. What it means that, that the church is a bride of, of the bridegroom and Jesus is looked at as a bridegroom and the church is his bride. And what a, uh, what a groom would do for his bride and all the love that goes with that for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, for, for a wife to, to highly esteem her husband to respect him, to support him. And all those things are true. It was at the wedding of Cana that Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, chose his first miracle. It was at a wedding that he did it. It was at a time of great celebration that he did it. God loves marriage. He loves it. He instituted it. We need to recognize that and understand that. So we flippantly say, well, I'll just get a divorce. Oh, so you really want a divorce? Then consider what God has to say. But as true as all of that is, and we'll discuss it, there's a passage that I want you to look at. Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, and you cannot, there's no way that you can do any gymnastics around this passage. It just is humanly impossible to try to read into this anything other than what God has to say. And as much as God highly esteems marriage, he also is very clear on what his position is as far as divorce is concerned. We need to recognize that and understand it. In Malachi chapter 2, look at verse 13 through verse 16 and listen to what God has to say. We read this. God is going through and, and indicting them on a number of things that they were doing that is wrong. You know, they were robbing God of tithes. They weren't giving what they were supposed to give. They were violating God's laws. Uh, they were cheating one another. They were cheating God. They were robbing Him. Uh, there was, they were being married to other cultures that were not... Uh, in tune with who God was and they weren't being obedient to God so there were spiritually mixed marriages that were taking place and God was angry at them and he was going through and he was reading off a, it was kind of he was just reading a riot act man one thing after another you know what this is what I got against you this is what you're doing sometimes that's what it takes we're so wishy-washy and we're so politically correct anymore with how we try to communicate things that no one hears anything because no one says anything anymore and sometimes what it takes is someone just to get in your face and say, hey, you know what? This is what I got a problem with. And he says to him, and this is another thing that you do. You want a list of stuff that you're doing? You want to know why I'm so angry and upset with what you're doing? Well, here's another thing. He says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They're sitting there moaning and groaning, saying, God, we're offering stuff to you, but you don't even accept our offerings anymore. You're angry at us. Something's wrong. And he's saying, yeah, there's something wrong. And you say, why? Why are you not listening to us? For what reason? And this is what he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You want to know why I'm upset with you? I'll tell you why. Because listen, buddy, look how you're treating your wife. Look what you're doing. You treat her treacherously. You treat her like garbage. You treat her like dirt. You don't have any respect for her. You don't have any respect for marriage. You made promises to her in front of me. I saw it. I witnessed it. I heard everything that you said on the day that you got married. And it goes both ways too, ma'am. I heard what you had to say. I heard your promises to your husband. And now I see what you're doing and it gets me sick. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Why? Because I hate divorce. I hate it. I hate it, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. 
So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I'll tell you what, there is no way anybody that loves God and loves His Word can read this passage and somehow or another weasel their way out of the fact that God hates divorce. He hates it. And you know what's interesting to me is all the indictments against these people in this particular passage, in this particular book, hey, they were robbing God of tithes and offerings. They were being spiritually mixed in their marriages. They were doing all this stuff that, was, that got, caused God to be angry and upset with them. And He indicted them for it. But you know what? There's only one thing that He said that He hated. That was it. Out of all the things they were indicted for, as much as he was angry at them for their sin, there was one sin that he hated. And he hated divorce. And there's a good reason for it. You know, it was fascinating to me because God doesn't hate too many things. I don't know if you know this or not. I went through and I started doing a word study. And the cool thing about like having computer programs now is that you can pick a word and you can get every time that that word is listed all in Scripture. And the word hate is used hundreds and hundreds of times. But the interesting thing is, it's rarely ever used of God hating things. It's always how I hate something, you hate something, we hate something, how people hate things. And, and we know how that is because we even tell our children as they were younger, growing up, oh, don't say hate, that's such a strong word. Don't say I hate you. You know, you hear brothers and sisters do that all the time. I hate you. Or they say when they're mad at their parents, I hate you. Oh, you know, don't say that. You know, that's a really strong term. And it is a strong term. But God doesn't hesitate to use it. He says, I hate divorce. And the interesting thing is, as I've gone through and looked at all of the word study, do it yourself, look at a concordance, go through a computer program if you haven't, but look it up and try to find the references that have to do with what God hates. And there's only 12 things that God hates. Can you imagine that? There are only 12 things. Every time the word hate is used in the Bible, there's only 12 things that God hates. So I look at that and say, you know what? There is something about divorce, if he hates it, that puts it in a very select company with the 12 things that he hates. Because he doesn't hate a whole bunch of stuff. And so I went through it and I thought, well, you know what? Let's take a look at it and take a look at 12 things that God hates. Now, obviously, we're just going to take a look at, you know what? And we'll probably end up just looking at the first one. But what's interesting to me is, at least today, and we'll look at the rest of them next week, but God hates divorce and it puts it in this select company. And I just want to just cover this one point. So hang in there with me. God hates this. Proverbs 6.17 gives us a list of things that God hates. It says there are six things that God hates and says, no, actually there are seven things that are an abomination before God. There are things that just make God sick to his stomach. And here's what they are. Number one, haughty eyes. God hates haughty eyes. You say, well, what in the world is a haughty eye? Because I'm looking at mine, looks blue to me. You know, what's a haughty eye? Check this out. Listen to this carefully. God hates a haughty eye. God hates when one person thinks that they are better than another person. God hates when one person looks down upon the other person. God hates when one person thinks they're better than the other person. And you know what's interesting to me? In all of the divorces that I've seen up close and personal, there's one thing that always comes to light. And I'll be talking and sharing with somebody, and here's what I'll hear. Well, look, I don't mean to say that I'm an angel or anything. I mean, I know that I have my faults too. Then what follows? But, but, but let me just tell you, they don't say, let me tell you why I think I'm so much better than him, or why I think I'm so much better than her. They just say, but let me just tell you about him. 
Let me just tell you about her. I'm, I'm not perfect. I know that. I got some faults, a couple of things wrong here and there, but I'm really working at it and I'm doing a lot better and I've come a long way. But let me just tell you about this person that I want to get rid of. Just let me share with you about this person. And then the attack on that spouse begins. God hates haughty eyes. True story. Let me kind of close everything I'm trying to say in this session with this story. Change the names. Friends told me a story. Friends of theirs. Let's just say Kurt and Marie. Kurt and Marie. They were married. All-American couple. Kurt went to school at USC. Graduated with honors from USC. Became a vice president of a very successful bank. Marie went to some fine eastern uh, school that she went to, finishing school. Moved to the west coast where she met her husband. They got married and everything was going great. His job was successful. He was making good money. They had a nice savings account. They bought a couple pieces of income property. It was producing income for him. Everything from all intents and purposes from the outside was going wonderfully. They were involved in their church. They knew the Lord. They loved the Lord. They were involved in the church. Something like this church, something like this group. They were involved. They were involved in their small group. They were also involved in the high school program where they were, you know, chaperones for different events and they hosted many things that were there. And the kids would come over to their house on a regular basis. And man, these people were plugged in and everybody that knew them loved them. You couldn't help but love them. There was something about them. You couldn't, you just, you just had to be there. You had to be around to see them and to see what they were doing. And man, everything was going great. They had two children, one was six and one was three. And then all of a sudden, one day, they found out one of their, their, one of their children, their son, who was six, got sick. Took him to the doctor and he was diagnosed with a form of cancer. And for the next six months to a year, it was touch and go with this cancer that this little boy had. And it was a very difficult time, but they got together with their friends and they prayed for him. They got support that they needed. They got all the love and encouragement that they needed. They were there. Their friends were with them. I mean, everything was there, man. And then finally, after almost a year and a half to two years of struggle, he was given a clean bill of health and everything was great. Subsequent checkups indicated that there was no, uh, no trace of cancer, that it had completely been eradicated. And man, things were going great. At least that's what everyone thought. Well, this man comes to our friends and he says, you're not going to believe this. But Marie came home today and she asked for a divorce. She wanted me to leave. She said, either you leave or I'm leaving, but one of us has got to go. And he was devastated. And our friends were devastated. No one could believe what was going on. Because from the outside, everything was going great. And he went and he moved in with friends of ours and stayed with them and lived with them while this whole process was going on. And as the days began to go along, the story began to emerge as days passed. And there was something in Marie had snapped during this walk that she walked through this terrifying tunnel of cancer with her son. And all the things that she went through and she sought her own relief and she sought, and she sought a way to divert herself from everything that she was dealing with. And she did it by finding somebody else. See, her... her, her aversion to all the problems. Her distraction, she thought, would become an affair with another person. And she became convinced that her own marriage was unfulfilling, that there was something lacking in it. And she never told anybody. She never told her closest friends. She never told anybody around her, the people that she was in church with, the accountability group. And let me just tell you something about accountability groups. I've been there and seen it. I've seen people meet together on a regular basis and how, oh, we're here to support each other and encourage each other. And all of a sudden you get blindsided by like this by someone who's been in your group for years and you didn't even know what was going on. Why? Because they didn't share it with you. They didn't have a close friend or someone they said, you know what, I'm struggling in my marriage and I'm thinking about having an affair. What do you think? 
what do you think about it? What should I do about it? I just want to be honest and open and transparent because that's the only way I'm going to get help. But she sat there year after year and group after group and never shared with anybody. And so they were blown away. They couldn't believe it. And so all of her close friends went to her and tried to talk her out of getting divorced. Oh, you don't want to do this. You know how devastating it is. It's, oh, it's terrible. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your family. It's going to destroy your children. It's going to destroy your life. And all the statistics that I just shared with you today were all the ones that they tried to share. You know, do you realize what it's going to do? And they couldn't understand what was going on. They couldn't understand what she was thinking because she wouldn't share it. And so oftentimes, that's the truth, isn't it, of people that have decided to divorce. Tell me what you're thinking. I'm not going to share it with you. I'm not going to tell you. Well, I can't help you. You've got to share What's on your mind? And so her husband was so frustrated, he didn't know what to do. But see, his wife had kept a diary. And he knew that if he could read her diary, that she would give some indication of what was going on that she wouldn't express to him verbally, but maybe she had written it down. And so he knew that she wasn't going to be home, and he snuck into the house, and he, he knew where she kept her diary. He took it to his office. He made photocopies of everything that he could. He hurried up, and he took it back. He snuck it back in before she would see it or recognize it. And, she, and he began to read the pages of her diary. And sure enough, she began all throughout the diary to express what she was really thinking. He was an insensitive jock. He didn't appreciate the finer things of life. He didn't appreciate the opera or good music. He didn't appreciate, you know, fine china and linen. He didn't appreciate all the things that now she was finding to be so exciting in her life. He didn't appreciate any of those things. And he was blown away by it because he had never had a conversation with her that she was ever upset about anything that was going on in their life. And so as he read it, he began to realize what had happened. And the whole plan of who she was going to seduce was all laid out in writing before him. And she had met a guy at the grocery store who worked in the delicatessen portion of the shopping center. And she was going to go to him and she had it all written down of how she was going to seduce him in a conversation and how one thing would lead to another thing. And that's exactly what happened. And it was all laid out. And you need to understand something because what God is saying is, I hate haughty eyes. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means this, that she had gotten to the point in her life where she thought that she was better than her husband. That she appreciated things that he didn't appreciate. That she deserved things that she wasn't getting from him. That there was more to life. And so what happened was, she even wrote in her diary and in her journal, she wrote this, it, was time that I, it is time that I traded upwards in mates. It's time that I go from a Hyundai to a Mercedes. I deserve it. I'm better than him. I had never in my life heard it articulated such as that. But I have heard it over and over and over again in conversations with people who will say to me, I know I've got my faults, but let me just tell you about her. Let me just tell you about him. And underlying all of it is a haughty spirit that says, you know what? I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I deserve better. I'm trading up. Man, let me just tell you something. Happiness cannot be purchased at a price of a disobedience to God. Our happiness cannot be purchased at a price if it requires disobedience to God. Why? Because disobedience is sin. And sin always will let you down. It never will deliver. 
our Bible study with the Rams, one thing that we always talked about as men, and it's a thing that came, kind of became our little our saying or our little our, our, our kind of a little slogan or whatever it was this. Sin is overrated and undercalculated. Sin is overrated and undercalculated. And don't you ever forget it. Sin will never deliver on the promises that it makes. It will always leave you hanging. It will always leave you coming up short. And it will always leave you on the end of it going like this. What in the world has happened to my life? Haughty eyes. The attitude of superiority. God hates it. Oh, let me just close with an update, by the way. It's been ten years since this happened. Kurt has gotten remarried. Has a new baby boy. Is enjoying his new life in Northern California. Things are going wonderful. And I can tell you story after story of how true this is for those who don't choose divorce, but divorce has been chosen by their spouse. And Marie, well, Marie, you know what she did? She married her lover. She married her Mercedes. Even though the people that knew the Mercedes warned about all the things that were wrong with the Mercedes. The Mercedes had a history of mental illness. The Mercedes had a history of alcohol and drug abuse. But see, Marie was different because she could change him. He'd be special. He'd be different. So Marie married her, married him, and within a year, she had gone through all the physical abuse that went along with his particular lifestyle. She was beaten on a regular basis. She was emotionally damaged, as you can imagine, that goes along with it. And within two years, she got a divorce. Well, she, married, she met another guy, and they're not married now, but she's living with her new boyfriend. And her daughter, who knows exactly what's going on, her quote is this. They now spend every day sitting on the couch, drinking beer all day long, and yelling at each other. So much for the upgrade. You understand what I'm trying to say? You understand what God's trying to say? There are 12 things that God hates. We've only seen one of them. But God hates haughty eyes. And if you think you're better than your spouse, God hates it, and it's a sin, and sin is always overrated, and it's undercalculated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We just look forward to what you have to say concerning this subject. God, help us to understand that there are a lot of voices in the world But we need to be listening to your voice because you're the only one who cares enough about us that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. You're the only one that's objective and that you'll tell the truth regardless of what our position is. God, we got people in our lives who will tell us whatever we want to hear and it's always to our detriment. I just pray that for those who are considering divorce, that have considered it, are considering it now, will ever consider it, that they would consider very closely and listen closely to your word to listen to your voice, to hear what you have to say, because yours truly is only the voice, the only voice of reason that we need to hear. God, we just pray that each one of us will not consider ourselves more highly than we ought to, but with humility of mind that we would consider others as more important than ourselves, particularly in our marriages. God, help us to see that our spouse is more important than ourselves and not to have a haughty spirit, not to have haughty eyes, but just to praise God, to thank you, God, for the spouse that you gave us. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.